Hi, this is Mark, and welcome to episode 26 of Nerdology, sponsored by CSO The Cult Fanzine. And my special guests today are Deb Stanish and Eric Stadnick. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Eric, you sound really uh, full of beans. Yes, I am full of beans. Uh, <laughs> hi, Mark. It's have great got, to be have back. Have we got Eric like Bot now? Fifteenth <laughs> time is that? What, this is my fifteenth yeah. guest appearance. I think. Well, you, you can't have too much of a good thing, can you? <laughs> or me either, apparently. But oh, I'm I'm very no, glad that on. you asked me back. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And we have the wonderful Deb Stanish. Well, hello there. This is like, I feel like I'm piggybacking on Eric's uh, coattails here because he, he's, you know, <laughs> he's the permanent guest, sort of permanent guest status. But. Well, that's how I get listeners to my podcast. <laughs> I just get someone good in and it tends to bump the figures up a well, bit. So that's go. what I'm hoping. The Eric Stanish spike. Yeah, exactly. It works a uh. treat. Now, <laughs> Deb for the Uninitiated is the uh, co-editor of the Hugo nominated podcast. Uh, Chicks Unravel Time. Mm-hmm. Weren't you involved in uh, Chicks Dig Time Lords as uh, well? Yeah, I actually, I, I contributed an essay to Chicks Dig Time Lords. And then uh, mm-hmm. I went on with Lynn Thomas, who co-edited that um, anthology to do Whedonistas, which is sort of a similar book in the world of Joss mm-hmm. Whedon properties. And I've contributed to all sorts of things, um, Outside In, the first Outside In, and uh, the Time mm-hmm. Unincorporated series as well. Mm-hmm. And I just recently did an essay for Apex Magazine. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's little bits of me sprinkled throughout anthologies in Doctor Whoville. <laughs> and Eric, you've uh, recently been involved in uh, Queer's Dig Time Lords. Yeah, that was um, prompted by Deb. I suggested the idea for Queer's Dig Time Lords mm-hmm. to the publisher who had done Chicks Dig Time Lords and Chicks Unravel Time and We Didn't and thought it would be a good next step and uh, then wrote an essay for that. And Apparently have an upcoming essay uh, coming in February in Outside In 2, and I think I wrote something else, but I honestly can't remember at this point. <laughs> so keep your eyes peeled yeah, when you book I shows. might be published somewhere in something about some stuff. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Nice and vague. That's the way we like it. So uh, the reason we got you two together, I mean, you two are good friends in real life. I can't life. stand her. Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard that rumor. I didn't like to mention it. I but. still have a bottle of your red licorice vodka in my car. So oh, yeah, well, how, did, how did you end up? Oh, fuck. Nobody wanted it. We were, we were in a con last weekend. We were in a con, and I was the mm-hmm. only person that didn't fly. So they were like, you have to take this stuff home. And I just, I, I still don't quite know what to do with it. You ended up with all the booze. I, well, it wasn't that much left, actually. But uh, well, what can I say? Was this the Long Island 2? Yes, which was last weekend. Mm-hmm. Well, last weekend. You guys were all playing. over that, weren't you? Yeah, we were. We were. There was there was a bunch of us there. Uh, Chip from Two Minute Time Lord was there, and mm-hmm. we had Graham Burke and Robert Smith, and uh, yeah, it was it was a really good time for a first year con. It was mm-hmm. remarkably um, hitch free, I would say. I'm sure that you know things didn't run perfectly, but they really did a nice job in sort of um, yeah with the mm-hmm. addressing the needs of the diverse group of people that were going to be there. Lots of panel diversity, mm-hmm. um, and really being adaptable to things as they were changing. Yeah. Which I always ad- everybody who goes to a con thinks they can do it better, but you really don't know mm-hmm. until you've run a con. Yeah. And I think they did a nice job. Friends of mine organized one earlier this year, and uh, it's a hell of a lot of work. And I think they only really realized how much work it was partway through setting it up. And mm-hmm. uh, they did an incredible job. Um, but people keep asking them, well, are you going to have the same thing next year? 
and they're thinking, well, maybe we need a year <laughs> off just to get over the previous one. Uh, but I'm sure they'll do something yeah. again. Yeah. So you, you two, I, unless I'm mistaken, I've not heard you both together on the same podcast. So I thought that would we be a nice not, little dynamic to have. We've never that been is, on a podcast that, together, have we, Eric? That's that's a vicious lie. Other Dad. than that is a vicious um, lie. Other than your very first no. podcast appearance ever, which was when I was still <gasps> co-hosting yes. Bridging the Rift. Oh, Bridging and the you Rift. came oh, on to promote Chicks dig, uh, Chicks and Chicks dig Time Lords, and it was your Chicks very first mm-hmm. podcast appearance ever. That was. I had forgotten about that because I wasn't supposed to do that podcast. No. And Lynn and I were working on Weedonistas at the time, and um, Tara O'Shea, who's her, um, who was her co-editor, couldn't make it, and she like mm-hmm. emailed me and said, "Are you available in fifteen minutes? I'm doing a podcast." And I was like, "Okay," and I think I actually like <laughs> talked into my computer, like there was no mics. <laughs> <laughs> the sound quality was significantly no lower idea than what now. I was doing. So yes, and then I read for you once for Doctor Who Book Club. Yes. So, yes. but that was just sending an audio file. So we've actually sort of appeared twice together. Hmm. But okay. since you've become a podcaster, so, this is the first actual together. Yes. Now, I asked you guys what you'd like to come on and, and talk about, and uh, you came back with Agatha Christie. Yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> and what prompted you to, to come up with that? Why is there a, is it a, a big passion for you both? Well, I think actually um, I was emailing Eric about this and like, well, what can we talk to that we both have in common or things that we really mm-hmm. like? And we kind of narrowed it down, I think, to Buffy the Vampire Slayer and uh, <laughs> Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. Because while, while there are things that we like, I think our nerd buckets tend to run fairly differently and fairly shallowly when it comes to uh, you know some more genre properties. At least mm-hmm. that was sort of my my take on it. And I knew this was something that he because we had had a conversation at one point where we were talking about comfort reading, and I remember him saying that Agatha Christie was sort of his go-to Ooh. comfort reading, and um, and it, it seemed like a fun idea because I hadn't I had gone through a very passionate Agatha Christie phase in my life and mm-hmm. I thought it'd be kind of fun to revisit that so what, what was your sort of impetus in in going with that choice Eric uh, me I don't know I, I think I wanted to come on um, Mark's show with something I didn't have to prepare as much for <laughs> or some, or oops. <laughs> oops. Actually, no. Given the amount of time spent preparing for the other things, reading, knocking out the four novels, which I only made it through three and three quarters, but still, was so much less work because I know the stories already. You know, everything is sort of mm-hmm. familiar. It's not; they're not difficult books. There's, they are comfort reading, and so plopping down of an evening, it's you know, and doing two hundred pages of an act of the Christie when you have nothing else to do that night is not difficult. Um, mm-hmm. Doing that with Dickens was a challenge. Mm, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. I have to confess, um, I cheated somewhat in as much as my, as I've mentioned on many occasions, my attention span is not great. Um, and I have quite a big collection of audiobooks. So as well as having the, the sort of fun of revisiting Agatha Christie novels, I got to have them read to me by... Um, acclaimed actors who've been in roles in Christie novels. So that was quite a nice way of experiencing them. So we had Joan Hickson reading the, the Marvel story, which I, I think she's brilliant. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah, that's not a hardship mm-hmm. there. I think that's actually... No, no. Yeah. And, and, I, and I tend to find, because I'm a very quick reader, that mm-hmm. when I'm listening to an audiobook, I pick up so many more nuances of the story because yeah. 
it forces mm. you to slow down and really focus where I tend to my eyes jumping to the end of the page to find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I have come to appreciate audiobooks a little bit more, not just as something I can do while I'm doing something else, but sometimes it really makes me concentrate and pick up the details that I may have missed if I'm not giving something a close reading and just sort of reading mm -hmm. it for pleasure. No, that's true. So we, we picked um, a few variations because Agatha Christie had her kind of stable of um, recurring characters. So probably most notable, the two most notable would be Poirot and Miss Marple. Uh, but we also have the characters of Tommy and Tuppence and also the mysterious Mr. Quinn as well. So we came up with a, a short list of a sort of picks to represent those characters. Yeah, Eric actually selected the four books, the four representative books. I'm really curious. I didn't because I didn't select. <laughs> you, you advised. <laughs> you just threw them all up in the air. Well, we, and just well, we, had, we had talked about what you know, sort of seminal characters we should discuss and where we mm -hmm. wanted to go. And these were your selections. And I'm kind of curious as to why you picked these particular novels. Because I think you had a, a sort of a, well, obviously the Harley Quinn was sort of easy because there's not that many of them. Yeah, and I firmly mm -hmm. believe that the Mr. Quinn stories are an interesting aspect of her writing that mm -hmm. uh, most people who think of Christie don't think of the uh, the mysterious Mr. Quinn and the Mr. Satterthwaite sort of pairing and I I think it's quite interesting and worth looking at in the con especially in the context of what she does other places um, so that mm -hmm. was sort of you know there's only the one collection of short stories and a few other stray short stories so that I have a theory that Mr. Quinn is a time <laughs> <laughs> he could be anything he's uh, mm. he's a hell of a thing um, so that was easily slotted in you're Deb are a big fan of Tommy and Tuppence. I was I was kind of prepared to leave Tommy and Tuppence alongside the road, um, but I'm glad we didn't. And so we went with NRM, which is the sort of middle book of I guess there are three or four books because there's right. mm -hmm. um, by the pricking of my thumbs, which is like a late Tommy yeah. and Tuppence, right? And then there's Secret partners in crime. Yeah, yeah. So they, it really her, their stories really go from the time they meet until like they're very elderly, which I think is interesting. They're the only characters yeah. in Christie who really age, mm -hmm. which is quite interesting um, in something or something real time. And then, you know, you have the Poirot and the Marple. And I actually picked the two that I think not necessarily are the best mysteries, the most famous mysteries. I think if you do that, mm -hmm. then you clearly probably go with Murder of Roger Ackroyd or, or Murder on the Orient Express. Um, it's harder to tell what the definitive Marple is, maybe Body in the Library. But I went with the two that made emotional impacts, which is rare for Christie's novels. Is that two mm -hmm. that actually seemed to be plumbing the depths of humanity a bit deeper? They're not just sort of mysteries. They actually seem to have maybe a little bit of something to say about about life. And they also employ slightly different mechanics in the way that the the mystery is yes. tackled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and she has um, she has an entire phase where she kind of gets very focused on memory and stuff um, and things like that mm -hmm. and kind of recalling past events. And, um, and Murder in Retrospect, which is also called Five Little Pigs, depending on the edition, is the best of mm -hmm. those, in my opinion. Um, and it's also, it is the purest Poirot can be. He goes, he talks to people, he sits it, and he figures it out. That is right. all that happens. There's yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a nice contrast between and, and I'm reading the Five Little Pigs edition between that and the Murders mm -hmm. Announced because they're, they're very similar and let's go talk to people about what happened mm -hmm. yeah and so it's it sort of it was a nice parallel because it's sort of a similar technique but done completely differently in, in a different mm. context 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. And of course, the the thing with uh, Five Little Pigs, which makes it somewhat different for a, a murder mystery, is that the murder happened years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and it's uh, it's sixteen years before the start of the novel, and um, mm-hmm. and a woman was convicted and jailed and died in prison. Although in it's interesting in the TV adaptation, I'm ninety nine percent sure they had her actually be hanged. Um, Oh, which really? is ex- it's expressly not done in the novel. They say she wasn't hanged, mm. um, but I'm pretty sure in, in the movie version, which is pretty solid and, and faithful in most respects, although it does twist a few things mm. here and there, they actually do have her uh, be executed. Should should we start with that since that's sort of where we're talking right yeah, now already? Why not? Why not? So Deb, I don't know what you thought of any of these except for I know yeah. that Tommy and Tuppence maybe, but we'll talk about that. <laughs> what did you think? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because I went through, like I said, I went through a very intense Agatha Christie phase when I was much, much younger. Um, And I think I was probably 18 or 19. And I was working my way through college and had a job in Wilmington, Delaware, which, you know, the city. And there was was a little, very tiny little city. There was a, a little used bookstore around the corner from my office. And I would go in there during my lunch hour and somebody had like cleared out their entire paperback Christie library. And I think the books were a dime. And every couple days I go in and grab another handful. Um, So I sort of immersed myself at at that point. And I remember really not liking Poirot as much. He he was probably my least favorite of all the ones that I read. Um, But going back and reading this now, you know, many years later as an adult, I think of all the stories that we read, I enjoyed this one the most. I think it... There's, a, there's sort of a technical skill in this writing and the way that she approached this story. And I, I don't know whether I'd feel that way going back and reading all the Poros, but in this particular, of the four that we selected, I found myself most captivated and appreciating the writing of this story, perhaps more than the Tommy and Tuppence NRM, which I thought that I was going to go back and adore because I just love those two characters and I love their relationship. And I kind of was seeing all the technical difficulties in that book that I probably mm-hmm. missed when I was, you know, 18 and 19. And they bothered me much more this time around. But I, I really enjoyed, um, I enjoyed the structure of this. I enjoyed, I enjoyed sort of the machinations of Poirot and, and the personalities that he assumed based on each person that he was interviewing. And I, I particularly, you know, knowing what we know about Agatha Christie um, and her personal life, you can't help but yeah. read into that how she treated you know, the, you know should we spoil these books can we spoil them for people i think i think they were published at the most recently <laughs> 60 years yeah. ago i think okay. i think we're gonna have to spoil them yeah all right so you know in unmasking the murder is, is the person who was trying to steal the husband you know of the mur- mm-hmm. of the, the person who was uh, <laughs> murdered you know, you sort of really see it's, and I try not to do that, but I couldn't help projecting her own personal relationship because her husband yeah. did leave her for his mistress, and it caused her to sort of have some sort of a breakdown, which is mm-hmm. all up for debate uh, as to what actually happened. Even though anybody who watched Doctor Who knows that it's all because of a giant wasp, <laughs> um, but you know, she disappeared for a week after this all occurred. So you, you know, I, I did mm-hmm. couldn't help myself from projecting that a little bit and how she treated this very cold, icy character. Uh, who was the young girl who was trying to steal the husband of the woman who was convicted of murder. Um, but, you know, I, I really, I found myself slowing down to read this one a little bit more because mm-hmm. I liked how I liked how it was being played out. Um, and it wasn't as dialogue heavy as some of the other 
as some of the other novels that we were reading in this series. So I, I, yeah, this one really caught me much more than I thought. I was surprised. Ha ha. Point for me. I think a lot of these these type of novels, you can. There's that you always have those sort of red herrings that get thrown in there to try and throw you off the scent. But she's, I think she's great at giving you just enough where you're sort of you're swaying between different characters as to oh, I'm, I'm absolutely certain now it's got to be this person mm-hmm. and she do, she does a great job of that I think um, she's I think she's a real populist writer I don't know if she's necessarily one of the most gifted technical writers but she understands characters mm-hmm. and she's great at obviously in her, her background she worked um, with medicines didn't she so she knows all about sort of poison yeah she was in a dispensary in world war one so you get this kind of um verisimilitude mm-hmm. to it that you you get that reality in in the way it all plays out but um yeah i i find her her sort of murder mysteries quite it's like putting on an old pair of shoes really sort of comfortable you can sit down and enjoy it take it in mm-hmm. and the characters i mean i know perhaps with the passing of time certain aspects of life back then aren't uh, quite seen in the same way i think we you can generally regard having read most of the books that you know, foreigners aren't to be trusted for starters mm-hmm. <laughs> even if they're completely legit no nope. they're, they're a bad egg yes would foreigners I, I, lower class yeah it's very it's very mm-hmm. classism is sort of rampant throughout the, yeah What's mm. interesting, though, is she <clears throat> she frequently subverts or inverts that. She'll have the really unpleasant characters mistrust mm. foreigners. And she has, through Poirot, in this, in Murder Retrospective and, and in other books, she has him talk about the fact that they mm. that the Englishman thinks that because he looks the way he does and talks the way he does, he clearly must be an idiot. And he plays that mm. up. And so it's sort of like she Absolutely. uses that... And she, she, she falls victim to it too. I, you know, she's a creature of her times, but she's at least somewhat aware of the fact that the English attitude of "oh, foreigners, what rot," you know, is is seriously flawed and leads to a great many troubles. Um, which, which I, I think, yeah, it's, and I think I you think see that even more so. Yeah, yeah, you see that even more so. I think in NRM, because yeah. the foreigner characters in that one, you know, all turn out to be the good guys are very trustworthy, and it is the very hale mm-hmm. and hearty Englishman who turns out to be yeah. the, you know, the spy, the fifth columnist, because you have the, you know, the German, and you have the the foreign woman who turned out to actually be Betty's mother, um, and you know, they're all very, very suspicious characters, and they're all played to type, and they all turn out to be quite innocent, and mm-hmm. um, I, I thought that was sort of like you said, it was subverting that that trope of Mm -hmm. you can't trust these that sort of builds up throughout her writing. So what did you think revisiting Tommy and Tuppence? Because I I find Tommy and Tuppence charming. I find their stories to be kind of bleh. And this was no exception. I thought I thought the storyline of NRM was really it's like when she had a sort of half baked spy idea, she would throw Tommy and Tuppence in to make it, you know, worth reading, but that's about it. She didn't I don't think she pays the same attention to detail with her thrillers as she does with her mysteries. I don't really I'm not that well versed with them. I've read um By the Pricking of By the Pricking of My Thumbs, yeah. My thumbs, yeah. Quite some time ago. Um I liked I liked the change of pace. I thought it was something a little bit different, and I like them as a couple. I think they work really well 
as like a team. I think that's, they're very cute. I just wanted to tell you, my, my Skype completely dropped there for about five <laughs> for the last couple of minutes. So um, right, I, okay. I miss what you guys said about uh, everything after my last comment. So we just were saying that Tommy and Tuppence were charming, but the plots in which they were settled are often sort of meh and they don't have the same technical skill as her mystery stories. I cannot argue with that. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, the, the strength of those particular books is their banter and is their relationship. And, and, and again, coming back to this much later in life, I was kind of appalled at how weak the story actually was. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but their relationship is just so delightful. And, and mm. I, I guess I was reading it for that reason or I appreciate the story for that reason. Yeah. Although I think, you know, Maybe I'm finding gold where there isn't any, but I think it's interesting that she again kind of subverts things where she does something she doesn't often do in her books, which is withhold or she makes you think the main character, the main detective in this case, which is Tuppence because Tommy is kind of sidelined fairly, you know, mm-hmm. fairly near the end um, and actually isn't that helpful beforehand. Um <laughs> Tuppence is made to seem to the reader and to the characters around her as if she's being led down a certain path when in fact she's had it figured out much longer mm-hmm. and she at the end gets to say haha I knew all along and you're like oh Tuppence is actually way smarter than I thought she was she figured it out and she because I, I was reading and like the scene where Mrs. Sprott killed the supposed kidnapper mm-hmm. I was like yeah. there's no way she takes that shot and makes it I was like there's no way and then sure enough, that's exactly the same thing that made Tuppence go, uh-huh, something's funny. Yeah. And I was exactly. like, oh, okay, so Tuppence is at least as smart as I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, but, you know, there's little clues that are dropped, that are dropped throughout. And I used to play the game, you know, could I figure out who the murderer was? And I, mm. I, I didn't, I don't have that same compulsion now, but, you know, I was trying to be quite clever. Um, and there are enough clues that you sort of can figure it out. And I know in this story, you know, and she kept talking about Solomon and Solomon and Solomon. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when you know that story, you can sort of see where they're going with it. And even in um, Five Little Pigs, when uh, Poor was reading the letter that Caroline had left for his sister and mm-hmm. said, said the, what was the line, you know, debts must be repaid. And I thought that struck me as very interesting when I read that. And of course, you know, then you can kind of see how that all extrapolates out. So I think she gives you enough that, that you could, but with NRM, I don't think I could have untangled that because there were so many twists and turns and who knew what. And yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you could come to the conclusion that Mrs. Sprott isn't what she appears to be, um, but that she had kidnapped that woman's baby is a bit strange mm. um yeah that came out of nowhere <laughs> the shoelace thing i also was like okay clearly he's being framed but um but the fact that the commander who had only appeared twice previously in sort of smallish scenes was actually mm-hmm. like the whole double bluff thing going on with him was a bit was a bit much i also was highly i also thought it was interesting that here's a story about two people in let's say early middle age um, they're in their mid forties, mid to late forties, who feel past it, and no one wants their service in the second World War Two, and they you know did all this work in World War One, and shortly thereafter, um, and their kids always kind of pity them. All oh, the old dears, they don't know, and her daughter just about gets them all killed. 
Yes. Because she can't keep yeah. her mouth shut about what her parents mm. might have done during the previous war. And it's like, I'm sorry, if my parents told me that they were secret agents, I wouldn't share that with anybody. <laughs> it's like <laughs> basic child of secret agent 101. And um, I think mm. it's 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 a, you know, it's a slightly older Christy writing about slightly older Tommy and Tuppence is getting her chance to sort of skewer the younger generation who thinks people maybe her age are a bit past it, which I, mm-hmm. you know... You know, when I was I, reading this at 18 or 19, I'm like, well, yeah, you know, you are sort of out there, you know, can you just sort of calm down? <laughs> now, in my 40s, I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I had a much different reaction to that conversation than I did when I wasn't rolling my eyes at, you know, the exposition dump in the beginning of everything they had mm. done and, and the years that they had done it as they're having this conversation with themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, that was, that was one of those awkward things that I kind of cringed as an editor you know, I wanted to take my red pen to that <laughs> yeah. very badly. Yeah, no, she, it's really just the, the Tommy and Tuppence books, which are all sort of these spy thrilleries or very, you know, that sort of thing, as opposed to traditional murder mysteries. Um, they're all, I think they're just poor, poorly written, comparatively speaking. She just, she had a different sort of thing she was going for, and she's much less tidy and mm-hmm. everything um, and because they're kind of spaced out, she does kind of feel the need to do a lot of info summary and things like that and, and just cramming of information in sometimes. And it's just, they don't they don't really hold up and in the same way, I don't think. And she has other, you know, spy sort of thrillery novels um, that are that don't feature Tommy and Tuppence. And they're, for me at least, of a piece. I haven't read them in any of them in a while, but like, you know, they came to Baghdad and things like this. And they're all just sort of a bit, they're very creaky. They're very, very creaky. There's a reason James Bond became famous and her spies never did. <laughs> it's a little bit like George Clooney sort of slumming it and doing a few sort of uh, brainless thriller movies in between doing Steven Soda. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good analogy. But again, you know, if, if for somebody who adored those characters, I ate those novels up with a spoon because mm-hmm. I, I loved their relationship. And I think that's that's an aspect of those novels that that sort of redeem them for me no i think i think definitely it's tommy and tuppence are great together if there were just like tommy and tuppence hanging around the house for a day i would watch that you know that would be calling each other old dear and calling each other old dear and making fun of each other slightly and then suddenly having really serious moments where they kind of you know express their love for each other and they're 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 sweet they're funny they're an interesting couple they're probably the only happily married couple in all of christy i can think of um you know, well, actually, they remind me in some ways, or at least Tuppence does, reminds me of Ariadne Oliver, who we didn't read about, but who's the sort of Christie alter ego in the novels, um, mm-hmm. the mystery writer who helps out Poirot a couple times, and also mm-hmm. Bunch, who's in A Murder as Announced. Yes. Mm-hmm. The I love vic- Bunch. The, Bunch is wonderful, the smarter-than-she-looks vicar's wife, who yes. uh, is kind of blundering in but always knows much more than she's going on. Did you think, and this is just a weird thing I got from reading Murders Announced this time, did you think Bunch was sitting there trying to learn how to be Miss Marple? Like sitting there at her knee when Jane's explaining everything and being like, oh, so that's how you knew. She almost seems to be really wanting to like be Miss Marple when she grows up. Yeah, I, you know, you do kind of get that impression because she is, you know, she is sort of fumbly and bumbly and, you know, talking about her borders and... Um, She's such a she's such an interesting character because I think it's indicative of the whole Miss Marple sort of mystique. It's it's the person who is so underestimated until they're in the know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously you have the people that dismiss 
Jane Marple you know, out of hand as being this sort of wifty mm-hmm. little cotton-haired, white-haired old woman who knits a lot. Knitting figures very prominently in a lot of Agatha Christie <laughs> novels, by the way. Yes, it uh, does. And... You know, and I think Bunch is, is similarly underestimated because she does sort of, whether intentionally or unintentionally, kind of stumbles onto the right answer a lot uh, mm-hmm. in the novels that she's in. So, yeah, I can totally see her, you know, learning the art of observation from Miss Marvel because that's really yeah. sort of all it is. Yeah, and finding those comparisons between, you know, human behaviors. It's a similar sort of approach. To, it's, a, it's quote unquote the psychological approach that Poirot always espouses, but it's done in terms of an of um, analogy, essentially. It's, you know, mm-hmm. oh, I knew that man was the thief because he reminded me of that butcher's boy who always took a little extra piece of bacon for himself or whatever, you know. <laughs> right, right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting. But what I, but what strikes me about Murders Renounced is, A, it's such a crazy idea for how to do and like it is a you know of all the plots that she has the one where there's like an ad placed in the paper saying that there's someone's going to be killed and sure enough someone is killed and everyone sees it happen they still don't know what happened i think is um i think it's just fabulous that's that's such a good sort of mechanic um but the other is i love i love how good she is at making you like and sympathize with miss blacklock Mm-hmm. You like her mm-hmm. a lot, and then at the end you find out, oh, she's the killer. Um, yeah, and it's and that's what makes it kind of really emotional for me is that, you know, as emotional as as Christy gets at least is like when she's you know when Miss Marple has imitated Dora Bunner's voice to freak out Letitia Blacklock, who's actually Charlotte Blacklock mm-hmm. in a whole stolen identity thing. Um, she says, Miss Blacklock says, you really shouldn't have done that. I really loved Dora. And it's like, she did. She loved this person that she killed um, mm-hmm. because she couldn't have her around anymore. But she's, it's rare that, you know, Christy murderer sort of collapse into a heap of sobs at the end as opposed to, oh, I would have gotten away for you, you know. They're usually sort of <laughs> fairly, kids. They're usually fairly <laughs> snarly at the end or sort of, you know, unrepentantly somewhere or the other, whereas Letitia's just defeated. She's mm-hmm. utterly just defeated. You know, she tries one last crazy attempt to drown Mitzi, which I don't know how the hell that would have gotten away with. But, you know, mm. she just, yeah, she just completely collapses. And I love her sort of growing panic as the novel goes on that you think is her being panicked about who's someone trying to kill her. And then you realize it's everything is kind of spiraling out of control. Um, right. And her reaction when Miss Marple, when they think Miss Marple's been done away with. She's completely baffled because she's killing people. So she knows who the murderer is. And she's like, who would want to kill her? What is going on? (laughs) She's like, if somebody does. Yeah. And that's when she really starts to lose it. And the scene where the pearls go and she completely, yeah, it's. Yeah. Another, I mean, this and this book is so fascinating too because we don't even, at least in my edition, I don't think we we see Miss Marple until page 67. Like a quarter of the way through the book. We finally, more than a quarter, actually, we finally, you know, are, have, bring Jane Marple into this story. So, mm-hmm. you know, this idea of having this outside observer, you know, not really engaged in the action, which is something that I think Poirot and, and Marple both sort of um, touch upon. You know, they're not really part of events, but they're they, they're just sort of these observers that drop these little, you know, nuggets of, well, this could have happened and this, you know, this thing happened. And it's... 
it's so pre- it's so obvious in this book because we don't even see her until way into the game after they're you know they're interviewing everybody and all the actions already occurred. So I, I find that an interesting storytelling device of not bringing your detective in until pretty darn late in the game. I think also with uh, Marple because she's just this nice little old lady who just happens to wander into all these situations. You can't really have her there from word go, I guess, because it would just seem a bit hokey maybe. Whereas Poirot is the is the detective and he's hired to, mm-hmm. to seek out these cases. So I suppose it gives it a little bit more of a realistic impression. But I grew up with Marple um, when I was a, a little kid. Joan Hickson was playing her on the BBC adaptation. So that was my introduction to Agatha Christie. And... Um, my mum comes from Somerset, which is in the, in the countryside in, in England, and uh, all of the, the sort of locations for these stories are very evocative of that sort of countryside. So it does feel kind of rooted in reality, albeit a slightly heightened sort of, I don't know, how should I put it? Sort of idealised. Slightly heightened, yeah. Yeah, yeah idealised, yeah. It's yeah. rose-tinged, although I think yeah. I think it's interesting Murder's announced. She deals with the fact that, like, the country village isn't the country village anymore. Yeah, that, it's all about identity. Yeah, it? and or... it's about, like, you can now move to a small little village and you don't have letters of introduction. Mm-hmm. You don't know Colonel so-and-so who used to live up the Grange yeah. or whatever, and it's sort of like this mm-hmm. modern England is starting to emerge, and Miss Marple's adjusting to it, but she doesn't seem fond of it necessarily. Um, <laughs> and I think, yes... Yeah, you can see that through throughout the course of her, you know, starting at the beginning with Murder of Roger Ackroyd. You can really see mm-hmm. sort of the whole change of English society as, as you know, we kind of move through the novels, not sequentially, but, you know, by publication date and, and how things have changed. Because it is very much a Downton Abbey world in the early, uh, in the early novels. And then that sort of, you know, everybody still has servants, at least a servant, even if you're in a flat. Um, yeah. It, 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 that's kind of interesting in itself as a sort of social document, isn't it? It, it is. It how... really is. And and I think as an American, you know, sort of, because you, we kind of eat that stuff up with a spoon um, at mm-hmm. times. And it, it's really fascinating to look at a glimpse. And, and I think you realize that it is not certainly accurate or 100% accurate. It is more an idealized version, but to sort of see what life was was like and, you know, reading that. And, and it's an interesting social commentary because it's nothing like we have here in the States. So it was kind of a peek into a different world in reading these when I was when I was younger. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that was part of the attraction when I first discovered uh, the Christian novels when I was quite young i think i probably got him through the the david suchet poirot which was which has just mm-hmm. concluded finally after 20 yes. plus years or whatever of him playing the role he's finally now starting every poirot story i believe which is crazy pants um but you know they were on when i was you know 10 11 12 and i started just getting the christie mm-hmm. novels and and because they're they're safe mystery books like if you want a kid who's into that sort of stuff and you don't want swearing or a lot of violence or whatnot it's like mm-hmm. Agatha christie she's a solid writer she's not going to teach them anything fascinating about like you know prose style or something but she's going to be fun and engaging and and rare rare enough for someone who's kind of writing about murder a lot Mm-hmm. not super violent and uh you know sex is kind of kept mainly off stage and things and that's that's always nice um but but when i first read murders announced i was probably 12 or 13 and then i read it again when i was in the 20s and i was like huh there's a lesbian couple in this yeah 
And she never says it, but she says everything but. Right. Yeah. She does. She provides you all the information you need to draw the conclusion. Oh, these women are are life partners. Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to just two ladies who happen to share a cottage together, which is how I read it probably when I was like ten or eleven or twelve. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think that makes the murder even you know a little bit more horrifying. Realizing that. It does. It does. And that's that's the thing. All the murders in this, except for the first one, feel really painful. They're not, mm-hmm. in Murders Announced, they're not, you know, oh, that annoying person got killed, or oh, the rich old man who's a bastard to his kids got killed, like it is in many of the books. It is it is a random guy who was in the wrong, essentially, you know, it's kind of a bit shady, but not really bad. And then a heartwarming, sweet, fuzzy-headed woman, and then a really sweet character who has someone who loves her desperately. And it's like, that's that's awful. That's really mm. that's really awful. And that's kind of the, the sort of destruction that murder can bring that I think she kind of glosses over a lot, but really hits home in A Murder's Announced and also in Five Little Pigs. I think that what you have at the end of Five Little Pigs is that this entire group of people who were all very close is kind of destroyed by this one act of violence perpetrated mm-hmm. by someone essentially from the outside, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. like the brothers, Blake, don't talk to each other much. Neither, you know, they haven't seen Angela Warren in years. None of them have met, you know, Caroline's daughter. And it's like this entire little sort of fake family was just completely decimated. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, there's definitely a sense of, of of malevolence in Five Little Pigs that you don't have in a murder's announced. There's more of a sense mm-hmm. of escalating desperation. So, like you said before, Eric, that you know it's a very sympathetic novel in which the murderer is just you know she's wrecked at the end, and you don't see that in Five Little Pigs. You see somebody whose life is destroyed, but they're not willing to admit that they're going to change or that it was important. I mean, they're, they're very sort of dead inside, but they're not repentant in any way um, or, yeah. you know, sad about it and just don't, don't care that sort of the havoc that they have caused. So I think mm-hmm. even though, yeah, it's just, it's very two, two distinct different sort of murders. And even though you know, things are awful and horrendous and you would, you had mm. to say in a murders announced that, you know, there's, there's a higher body count and you think mm-hmm. that would be more horrible, but you're very sort of sympathetic, you know, because you like these characters yeah. but, and yeah. 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 And it is interesting in murders and uh, uh, murder in retrospect or five little pigs. It's one of the few where there's only one dead body by the end of the book still. Um, you know, and the murderer gets away with it technically. Technically, yeah, but it is. I think, you know, Christie's allowing us to be a bit. You know, her last line as she kind of walks off stage in all of her regal glory is, "I died." Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. she's the murderess, but when she killed the man she loved, she, I died. And, and she's wrapped up in fur, and, and she's, she's wrapped, wrapped up, up in, in that lifestyle that she so craved. That she so craved, yeah. and it's empty and miserable, and she hates everything about herself, and it's sort of. Well, there it is. That's, <laughs> I guess that is. And in a way, he's kind of, Poirot has brought that artificial family back together and they've rejected her. She's mm-hmm. kind of finally forcibly evicted from that group, but the Blake brothers have kind of reconciled. Caroline is back, or not Caroline, but Caroline's daughter is back and Angela is back. And even Miss Williams, who, again, lesbian. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's sort of, the, the, most recent adaptation of this, the David Suchet, Five Little Pigs, um, is really interesting in that it makes Philip Blake, 
Um, it explains his hatred for Caroline and his devoted attachment to Amias as a, a homosexual attraction that Amias kind of mm. teases him with fulfilling, mm. but never actually does. And so Philip kind of, so the brothers actually kind of mirror each other in that Meredith is devoted to Caroline and Philip is devoted to Amias. Right. And it makes a nice little you know, sort I of parallel. I kind of got that sense reading it, though. I, I, I did get a little bit of, hmm, he reacted very strongly to this, he, to this marriage in, in a way that was a little out of character. Yeah. Yeah, no, it seems... It, she's def- she definitely throws characters like in, who are so adamant about hating the other sex and being single and things and have very close attachments with people of the same sex. It's sort of like, I see what you're getting at here, you know. She's... Mm-hmm. She's not unaware of such things. <laughs> right. there, there's always some sturdy English woman who's good at games or good at organizing things. <laughs> like, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm coding here. What am, what am I seeing here? So there's always that, yeah. you know, brogue wearing, tweed wearing single woman with, you know, strong cheekbones. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, but we haven't talked about Harley Quinn, who no. is the, sort of the odd oddball yeah. in the mix here. Yeah, I I kind of she has a bunch of short stories, many of which feature you know Marple or or Poirot, some even you know feature Tommy and Tuppence. But she has a bunch that are sort of free floating, um, and a lot of them have to do with like little mysteries that sort of involve lovers reconciling in various ways. Um, she's kind of. That was one of her, and she, of course she wrote romance novels on, on the side under a pseudonym, which I think is hysterical. Um, but she um, she did these, and these stories are like, of everything we read, they're the earliest. Uh, mm-hmm. The Harley Quinn books, well, Harley Quinn stories were all written in the 20s, which I think is fascinating because she makes the main character, Mr. Satterthwaite, an old man, and the fact that his wisdom of years is what gives him this sort of experience. And she does the same with Poirot and, you know, Marple. She doesn't write about young people, even when she's young, she writes about old people, which I think is interesting. Um, but they all revolve around this character, uh, these stories, at least, of Mr. Quinn, who appears in various ways when things are about to unfold and kind of trigger, um, he's a catalyst, is even the phrase Mr. Satterthwaite uses, this mm. Mr. Satterthwaite who's sort of, a non-Belgian, non-professional detective version of Poirot. He's sort of a very keen observer of life and its dramas to act at the right moment, to often save a life or to bring, you know, unhappy lovers back together or things like that. Feels like a bit like a prototype to something like Sapphire and Steel. (laughs) (laughs) In a sort of 1930s way. Well, yeah. Well, Um, Harley Quinn is, he just, he's, he's a flatly supernatural character. There is no... mm rational explanation for him she doesn't seek to provide one and she has other novels that have you know the occult or elements of it being real that just Mm -hmm. like they they the plot hinges on the fact that certain things are are actually true like um and that's just something she occasionally incorporated she usually kept it out of the poire on the marples but she these other short stories and these other novels often feature it like pale horse and uh, Sidiford mm-hmm. mystery and things like that. Um, and here and this it's is definitely this... sort of magical realism. Yeah. What did you With think? Cause I, I, I adore these stories as a whole, like each individually, I think they're, you know, they're varying quality, but the sort of cumulative effect they make for me is really fascinating and really interesting. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't, most people don't read these. And so I don't know what anyone else ever thinks about these. <laughs> You know, I remember reading these um, for the first time and desperately wishing there were more. 
because I really, really liked this character, and I liked sort of, I liked the relationship that he had with Satherwaite, Be- because he, he and Mrs. Marple were, or Miss Marple, sort of reminded me of, of you know elderly observers of life who have lived you know a very long time and have seen a lot of things. But you get, and especially at the, at the end of this book, you get the sense that you know, Satherwaite really hasn't engaged in life mm-hmm. or hasn't lived the life. And that's sort of a, a lazy way of going about it, sort of being a vampire in everybody else's life, of just sort of taking everybody else's experiences in and watching it. Um, so I, I thought the relationship was fascinating. And I really, you know, I, I want more Harley Quinn. I wish there was more Harley Quinn out there because it, it's a different type of story and it really makes you uh, sort of observe in a way that the marbles and the pores don't. And, and it's, you know, there's always a love angle, especially in this collection of short stories. And, you know, it's, it's people poking other people to get to the truth rather than them getting to the truth. Which yeah. I it was a different. It's a different storytelling technique for for Christy, and I think it works really well. And I wish these stories were a little bit more appreciated because I think they are pretty strong. I think there's a lot of skill involved in trying to pack um, what can be quite a sort of complex genre into a very small um, page count. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got you've got to set it up and and then explain the mystery in a, a relatively small amount of uh, you know, pages, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I really enjoyed them. Um, I didn't make it right the way through the book, I have to say. I got about three quarters through. Um, that was the last one that I tackled. Um, but yeah, the ones I read, I thought were really good. Fun. Just just read the last one, Harlequin, Harlequin's Lane, or whatever it's called. Um, yeah, because really? that's that's the one where she finally essentially says she finally essentially lays bare the relationship and the dynamic and what Harlequin represents and what forces he mm-hmm. gathers. And it's not. It's actually super duper Freudian. Um, mm-hmm. like not only the sort of psychoanalytical approach where you just kind of provide enough information that the person who already has the answer comes up with it themselves, which is, you know, a lot like the therapeutic, uh, talking cure method. Um, but Harlequin, which initially sees, seems like a sort of, um, like an impulse of, of love, but he also is death. And he's sort of this, mm-hmm. he's the, the Eros and the Thanatos drives kind of combined, combined, um, and that becomes really clear in the last story. It's been hinted at that, you know, he speaks for the dead and things like this, but that he actually also is sort of the allure, the eternal lover that is death. And that, um, and that's why Satterthwaite can kind of see him, but can't fully appreciate what he does. He's, got, he, um, he's kind of both never loved. And because of that, he's kind of never really lived. And it's a right. very, and it's a very interesting dynamic that he appears, he literally at times where he only appears to that one man and no one else can even see that Quinn is there. Um, mm-hmm. And then there are times where it's like, oh, Quinn's here. And it's sort of like, he's just another guy. And I love that he kind of shifts between reality and unreality in a really, in a really interesting way. And the stories by themselves are pretty solid little, lovely little mysteries with, you know, oh, that's how you did it, you know. Yeah, they're they're like these little nuggets that have sort of an overarching of, of theme to them, and you know it it is a little Freudian, and sometimes it's a little obvious, especially at the, the very last story that you're talking about. You know, lovers lovers lane either ends in a dump or a cottage, you know, sort of thing. Which <laughs> I mean, beat that over your head a couple times, but you know, this time reading it through, you almost I, I kind of got the sense you because know, there's this sort of um, you know trope in literature where where death is not one person; it, it's kind of a, a role that's assumed, sort of the Santa Claus. You know, mm-hmm. once Santa Claus goes 
goes and new Santa Claus takes its place and you kind of bind to that contract and I'm really pulling in some really bad, you know, 1990s movies now. But, um, you know, I could see Mr. Southwick becoming the next Harley Quinn. Yeah. You know, as somebody who mm. observes but yet does not take part and sort of prods the action. So um, that was something that occurred to me at the end of this. I'm like, huh, I never thought about that before. But yeah, you can kind of see this as a role that sort of passed on. But uh, yeah, it, it, that last story just sort of hits you in the gut a little bit because it is it ends in a very plaintive note. And yeah. you really feel badly. And I know there's more stories out there. And now I want to go back and read them more, to, you know, because I don't remember what happens next. In I think there's their one other I, I might be wrong there's one other at least called the harlequin tea set that i actually finally found in the collection that is named after it uh, at a used bookstore in maine a couple of years, summers ago um because it's just not widely published in the states because it essentially is i believe it's only the one and it's set sometime after mm-hmm. and sort of it's sort of the last time it's mm-hmm. um south the way you kind of said i knew i would see you one last time essentially kind of thing and he gets to have one more moment where he gets to save the day essentially um mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, there, but you're right. It's, it's there, it's this overarching theme and the kind of pushing towards this sort of final moment where, you know, he can't save any, a Quinn appears and it's not because anyone's going to be saved. It's because something terrible is going to happen. There's nothing you can do to prevent it mm-hmm. sort of in a way. Um, and, it's the opposite you know, of life, you know, where Quinn is saving these lives at the end, and you know, there's a life that cannot be saved. Yeah, so. a life that cannot be saved, and by, you know, the accounts of what they want, never wanted to be saved in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you get the impression that the, the ballerina, whose name I've forgotten, kind of only lived because it was inertia in some way. She mm-hmm. kind of kept on going when she gave up dancing, and then she gets to dance her final dance with Harlequin. Ha ha ha! That's not too subtle. Um, <laughs> and yeah, finds herself the on the rubbish heap. Beat you over the head. It does. Head. It does. But it's you know she's not exactly subtle. But the fact that she's even reaching for something, I think, is commendable. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it even gets kind of almost dreamlike when he's describing the dance, the little you know village Harlequinade they put on, and Southwick's watching it, and sort of like really drifts from scene to scene to the point you're kind of reading it you're like i have no idea what's going on at this point like is this still actually happening or is this some sort of weird fantasy and the first time i read it i had to read it through like three times just to make sure i knew what was actually happening to the characters and what was simply imaginings but you're right it it leaves you know our little proto mr poirot hero um broken um and kind of embittered and he says you know i never walked down your lane you know, I never walked down Lover's Lane, and sort of there it is. Yeah, it's quite sad, but I I, I really yeah. enjoy those stories. Did I think of a sense that Deb is going to go off and write some <laughs> fanfic now? <laughs> no, no, sadly, sadly, no, no time in the day. Um, <laughs> it, of all the of the four stories that we read, I think the one that you could probably do the most, you know, sort of serious literary critique would be would be Harley Quinn because that's the one I think is the most ambitious. It's yeah. not just telling an interesting story or telling a good yarn. It actually sort of delves into some themes that, that she doesn't do in her classic thrillers and mysteries. So it's sort of an interesting break, but they're really, I mean, they're really good stories that give you a lot to chew on where the other, like the NRM, it's a story, you know, it's a thriller. And the thing that makes that 
it makes it enjoyable is not the story itself because at at some point I was convinced it was Betty the baby who was the murderer <laughs> or was the spy you know because it's just it, it was too too twisty and I'm trying really really hard to throw you off the trail and I'm sure this baby talk is really not baby talk um, but it you know what makes this story charming isn't that it's a good yarn it tries to be more than that and it, I think it does so quite successfully if you're choosing to give it a close read you don't have to but if you did want to give it a close read there's stuff to chew on in the harley quinn in the harley quinn stories i think yeah i think that i think that's exactly right and even the fact that she kind of has this weird obsession with the harlequin characters and the commedia dell'arte which appear in several Mm -hmm. other places in her works it seemed it's a recurring motif and that she chose that image and it's um there's something quite interesting in, right. in those books going on. Mark, what was your, because the, there's four very different books here. I mean, what was your favorite of the four? Mm. I think it would have to be the Marple story. Mm-hmm. I think I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I like, I like the sort of, um, that sort of classic quintessential um, whodunit in the English countryside. I think there's some great characters in there. That, for me, is the thing that makes Christie stand out is her... Um, ability to create really interesting and uh, fun characters, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's a real roller coaster ride. I love, I love that story. I think that was uh, my particular favorite of the four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a. Uh, speaking of adaptations, there is an excellent adaptation of this that was done in the most uh, the the most recent iteration of Marple. Uh, it was done in the first or second series, so it was still Geraldine McEwen as opposed to Julia McKenzie playing Miss Marple. Um, mm-hmm. With Oh my god, I've forgotten her name. But you know, Cassandra from Doctor Who. Um, oh, um, my brain is yeah, just died. No, it's completely <laughs> her. But she's very good. She's a very good actress, and she and she yeah. also plays uh, Ariadne Oliver in the Poirots with David Suchet. But in this, she mm. plays. Uh, pretty sure it's her playing Miss Blacklock, but I might be making that up now. Now I'm worried. I'm imagining that. <laughs> but anyhow, the but anyhow the the adaptation is very well done, and they really mm-hmm. they kind of change one moment slightly so that the pearl breaks happens as Marple's unraveling the mystery, and she kind of grabs the pearls, and the pearls fall down, and you see the scar, and it's sort of like all revealed at that moment. But it makes it very dramatic and mm-hmm. very sort of it's a really it's a really actually it's a really really solid adaptation of the book um and it also pushes the uh, the lesbian element a bit more to the fore which is which is nice to see in this day and age i don't know if you guys have had the um the last of the poirots over in america no i don't think it'll air this spring i, I think. don't know do they end up on pbs or yeah i don't know quite how they find them yeah they do end up on pbs via mystery uh, masterpiece mm-hmm. mystery i should say yeah mystery mm-hmm. masterpiece theater yeah yeah, I watched Curtain in the week, and uh, it's a real tearjerker for, for obvious reasons if you've read the book. Um, but it's, it's very well played out. There's a few Doctor Who connections within the cast. You've got uh, Anne Reed in one of the roles. Oh, Anne and Reed. also Sean Digwall as well, oh. who was uh, Rose's dad in the reboot. Do you know, I have never seen any of those Poros. None of them. Oh, None of them. Oh, because, wow. you know, I tend to be the type of person I like the books, and I I tend to be disappointed in adaptations, so I I tend not to seek them out. And, oh wow! But I'm hearing so many good things about them because it, the series is wrapping up. Um, yeah. That I'm really tempted now to go back and and see. And they're really. I think David Suchet and Hugh Fraser do a great job of of 
I can't wait to see Curtin just to see Hugh Hayward. Fraser back as uh, back as Hastings. That mm-hmm. would be that would be lovely. Um, mm-hmm. um, He's it's, it's yeah. Sherlock and Watson all over again. Yeah, which is what she did. Then she realized that I don't need Watson. You know, mm-hmm. she kind of realized that Watson was sort of a literary need that Conan Doyle had that she didn't, and so she kind of got. She, you know, sent him off to the Argentine and didn't really bring him back until the very end. Um, they insert him into quite a few stories where he's not in the adaptations. Um, yeah. But they even stopped doing that once they just started doing the books and had run out of all the short stories, which is what they originally started with. Mm-hmm. And uh, But yeah, no, they're, Suchet is, I think, will probably go down as the definitive um, Poirot because as good as I Albert Finney agree. is in Murder on the Internet Express, he kind of... Um, He's a bit too bombastic in some ways, I think, maybe, where Suchet is, um, he's one of the few people who can say the line, I do not approve of murder, which is a famous Poirot quote, without making it sound ridiculous. He makes it sound like a very serious moral judgment, which is, which is, (laughs) which is skill, which is tremendous skill. It's one of these few yeah. programs that would make me switch to ITV because I don't really tend to watch much on my <laughs> channel, but it's, it's, it's really well made. All right, well, Sorry, all you Downton Abbey fans. Well, well, here's a question for everybody. Do you think that uh, the Agatha Christie story, Agatha Christie stories still have something to offer to readers today? I mean, because they are, in some ways, they are very dated um, and they are of a world that no longer exists. And sometimes the prose is a bit hackneyed or, you know, even of a literary time and place that, you know, we don't subscribe to these days. Is it something that you think still has merit to a modern reading audience? I think um, there's a certain charm to them. And I, I like, well, I'm particularly interesting that in that period of history. So I'm perhaps somewhat biased anyway, but I, I think they're just a real damn good read. It's something you can pick up. It's, uh, you, I think you guys said it's, it's comfort reading. And I think that's, that's the perfect way of selling it. I think that's true. I don't know what you think. I, th- I think that's true. And I think I'd even go further and say she's probably still the best puzzle writer who's ever lived. I mean, no mm-hmm. one can kind of give you all the pieces and laugh at you as you fail to put them together and then show how easy it is at the end, <laughs> quite like Agatha Christie. Um, to the point where in a murder's announced, she actually gives you a list of all the things you should know. She gives you a list. She, like, you know, it's, and it's not the only time that she does that, where the detective, you find the, the detective's list and you see it and you're like, I don't know. This isn't doing it for me. I don't know how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very, she's very, very, very good at that. Her sort of uh, her spy stuff, um, and her later works, the kind of puzzle skill falls off. I would say anything written after like 1960 or so is a bit is a bit rough in that respect. Mm. But um, anything from like 20 to 1960, I would say, is mm. pretty solidly worth reading in that regard. And when she wants to, she doesn't always care to, but when she wants to, she can do really proper character studies. Um, mm-hmm. um, have you guys read the ABC murders? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a, a doozy. That is that, and it's quite an unusual kind of way of telling the story. Yeah, as well. that's very that's very weird for her too, because it is essentially it, it looks like it's Poirot investigating a serial murder, like a serial mm-hmm. killer is on the loose, um, and uh, but of course she puts her own spin on it, which is which is quite interesting. The only. Um, I won't say the only, but of course, the one book that we haven't talked about that doesn't fall into any of these categories, but that is a must read for Christie is And Then There Were None or Ten Little Indians, depending on which edition mm-hmm. you have. 
-hmm. That is a book that laughs at you when you fail to figure it out because literally all the characters are dead at the end. And it's only (laughs) because the murderer sent a letter ahead of time. Actually, I think it's a ship and note in a bottle, actually. I think it's romantic of that, um, that you find out what the solution is. And it is... Mm -hmm fascinating it's the beginning of the slasher genre arguably because it's people being picked off one by one until everyone's gone and it is so well done um that it's sort of impossible to piece it together even though really everything is there Mm -hmm. so i would would strongly recommend that too some of these books are just like master classes in in how to spin a really good mystery and you you rarely feel cheated at the end of the story saying, well, there's no way I could have gotten that. There's no way I could have figured it out. Uh, because she does give you enough elements that you should be able to at least be thinking in the right direction, if not outright, you know, being able to figure it out. But you never do. You very rarely are able to figure out. Or if you suspect it might be a particular character, you can't imagine how it got there or how it happened. And then she spins it out, you know, the big drawing room reveal, and it just makes so mm-hmm. much sense. And you're like, oh, this is brilliant. Like, why, why couldn't I have thought of that? But it's mm-hmm. amazing. And her observations yeah. of people, she, she definitely, yeah, the, yeah characters. the characters are so well drawn, sometimes a little broadly, particularly with her foreign yeah. characters. But, you know, mm-hmm. just the observation of, how people act and how people navigate their way through their own particular society is very, very astute. And I think she does that particularly well, even, you know, sort of giving the social constraints of the times that she was writing and sort of the inherent prejudice. But, um, you know, and I think that's what makes them still relevant today. Mm-hmm. You asked earlier, does it, are they still relevant? And I think it's, it's the character study um, that's still relevant because people, although times change, people's motivations quite often don't. Mm-hmm. That's very Miss Marple of you. <laughs> it is. And it's actually interesting. Like I'm knitting. A the, 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 <laughs> the doctor has that really over the top speech in uh, Unicorn and the Lost, the doctor episode where Agatha Christie is that character where she, mm-hmm. you know, he claims that Agatha Christie understands humanity. And I remember watching the time being like, Oh God, that is so overblown. But she actually sh- is like these books are some of the ones that show that she has at least some grasp on what it is that actually drives people and not mm. in the good way, but some of the darker things that drive people. And that is always, I think, um, you know, Miss Marple has a lot of wonderful phrases about evil. She's like, Oh, it's real. It is out there. It exists. And it's more common than you think. And she's like, you know, I often believe the worst because it so unfortunately turns out to be true. <laughs> you know, all this, all this sort of stuff. And that's really, Christy was kind of like that, that she was always aware that people sometimes were just bad or made really bad moral decisions. And But you know, the one thing that she did well, Miss Marple's never bitter about this knowledge. And that's one thing, you know, you think yeah. of a modern protagonist in these stories, they would just be twisted up and in therapy or have a drinking problem because they've just seen too much mm-hmm. of life. Well, Miss Marple's, you know, a pretty happy person, you know, sitting with her knitting and her tea and being happy, you know, to have these events at the vicarage with Bunch. And um, it, it hasn't changed her or warped her. It's just made her more observant, which I think is part of her charm that she's not naive yeah. in any way, shape or form, but she's not embittered by it either, which is, I don't think you would yeah. get that. In yeah. I, I think writing. No, I don't think you would. I think you would have just sort of everything's horrible and miserable and people are terrible. Whereas Christy always shows that, but then she almost always also has a parallel like romance storyline. 
Mm -hmm. It's much smaller. But, you know, young lovers reunited or whatever, or people who meet each other and things. Like, she feels the need kind of always to sort of remind you, but life is often quite good. Mm -hmm. um, and, and people fall in love, and love is great, and marriage can be wonderful, and sometimes good people are rewarded, and happiness prevails. It's not always, but it, it does happen, and that's sort of, um, she kind of does always remind you, or not always, but often remind you that, you know, yeah, there's a lot of evil out there too, but often there's good. And she, I think that's why she kind of is, she refuses to just let herself be you know, grumpy, grumpy, grumpy. Right. Yeah. She's not bowed by, not bowed by life, but she's certainly, no. she's certainly not naive about it either. Which, no. Good stuff. Do we have a, a book that perhaps we haven't covered so far today or, or one of the ones we have today that you would kind of throw out to listeners who haven't read uh, a Christie story before you'd like to recommend uh, if you don't want to read if you don't want to read these four because we spoiled them for you I would say you could always go with Murder on the Orient Express uh, for Poirot mm -hmm. um, I would probably say for Marple if you wanted to go that way I would actually go The 13 Problems which is a short story collection mm -hmm. of 13 mm. stories um, you know, I, she, I like Murder at the Vicarage too. That's that's one which that which I is her first. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's she's quite sour at times in that one, but it's it's nice to see her. She gets softer later on. Mm -hmm. um, um, and then you know, I would say, um, like I said, I think, uh, and then there were none as kind of uh, required reading reading in some way. And also, if you wanted to the um, um, the Mousetrap, which is the longest running play in human history. <laughs> No, it's literally, still running, yes. isn't it? It's, I think yeah, it's, it's still, still running. running. It's wow. still running. Oh, and Witness for the Prosecution, of course. Mm -hmm. Which which the film version of was Charles Lawton and um, what's her face, the German woman. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, you know, sexy tuxedo. Uh, Marlena Dietrich uh. is is an amazing movie, and you should all check it out. And it's yeah, very I'm trying, I'm trying to think of what the name of the um, Tommy and Tuppence short story collection was. And I'm drawing a blank because I remember enjoying that one a lot. Isn't that Partners in Crime? Yes, it is Partners in Crime. Yes, because Secret Adversary was their first. And, so, and, and I don't think that's their, their strongest. It definitely introduces them in the banner. They fall in love and it's, you know, it's wonderful. They have a great relationship. But I think um, Partners in Crime is definitely, uh, I think it's probably their stronger of that sort of, yeah. I would definitely recommend that if you're interested in more Tommy and Tuppence. But... You know, it's hard to go. I mean, there's, there's such, these novels are, are classic for a reason. I mean, there's a reason why people still talk about Murder and Learning Express because it, they're just mm -hmm. really good, solidly built stories. And, yeah. uh, you know, if you're looking for a little bit of escapism, you know, I don't think you can beat Christie. It's, except for the murder of Roger Ackroyd, which I'm still a little bitter about. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that starting Christie, even though it's yeah, her no, first. I, I, would, I, I wouldn't I have a suggest that as a first. I have a coworker who read that first, and he said everything felt like a cheat afterwards. Um, yeah, yeah, but no, a nice Christie and a cup of tea and a you know little quilt around your legs. That's a that's a lovely <laughs> Tuesday evening. In as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> definitely comfort reading. It definitely yeah. is. Yeah, I mean, I would go for um, Evil Under the Sun, which is a Poirot mm -hmm. uh, mystery, which I I rather enjoy, mainly because of the location, because it's it's based on somewhere very close to where I live. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of cool um and also have you guys read dumb witness yes about the dog 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I read cute. that ages ago. Gosh, I can barely remember what mm. it's about now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Poirot does another one of his kind of um, adopting um, different guises to get information out of suspects. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I found that quite an interesting one. Yeah. So I'd probably throw those two into the hat as well. well. There you go. We have a reading list now. Christy reading list. <laughs> <laughs> so I always do this at the end of a show. We will ask you just to recommend a few things, not necessarily Christy related, that you've been enjoying recently that you'd like to recommend to our listeners. So I'm going to put Eric on the spot first. What would you like to recommend? Um, I'm going to go super duper highbrow. Uh, earlier this week... Um, I went to the movie theater, which through one of these sort of uh, arrangements was screening the Metropolitan Opera from New York. Um, it was a rebroadcast, mm-hmm. but they also do it live screening in HD. And it was Tosca, Puccini's Tosca. And it was an amazing oh, wow. performance. You know, the, the Met doesn't do bad. Um, <laughs> and they're available at, you know, I think it's Phantom Events at the company that does it in the States. I'm not sure if it's always, but, you know, I would just check mm-hmm. everywhere and they're available apparently on six continents. So there's probably one at least somewhere remotely near you. Um, and if you have any, if you've ever been curious about what it's like to go to the opera, that's a really good starting place. And they're, they're just fascinating performances and they're really, really super well done. So you should check that out. I think it's a nice way to bring it into the mainstream because I think possibly it might be a thing over here, but it seems perhaps a little bit um, difficult for the everyday person to wander into an yeah. opera house and, and watch watch a performance. Yeah, tickets for the opera in the hundreds of dollars, this was 20 bucks. And you could get popcorn. Yeah. So, you know, it's... <laughs> it's a win. <laughs> everyone's a yeah, winner. Yeah, everyone's a winner. <laughs> uh, how about well, you, I'm Deb? I'm a really lowbrow. Um, <laughs> how can you compete with Tosca? Come on. Um, you know, obviously this week has been all about Doctor Who because we're leading up to the 20th anniversary next weekend. So there's been lots of 50th. lots of really good stuff. But I'm not... The, the 50th? Did I say, to, you know, I've done this so many times. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm traveling backwards in time. The 50th anniversary, of course. Um, so that has been eating up a lot of brain space. But, but sort of mm-hmm. my, my biggest guilty pleasure currently is Sleepy Hollow, uh, which is oh, okay. a bonkers television show that's currently airing in the States on Fox, which I think you guys might be getting. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just starting to get. And it is it is literally the craziest thing I have ever watched in my life in a disturbing <laughs> Washington's um, Legend of Sleepy Hollows sort of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer style where Ichabod Crane wakes up in 2013 Sleepy Hollow. There is a headless horseman who at one point is wielding an AK-47. Um, there's witches. Okay. There's, I think George Washington <laughs> is a demon hunter. I mean, it is, it is crazy cakes, but... It's done in such a way, it knows it's crazy. Um, it's sort of, it's not taking itself seriously, but it's taking telling a, a, a good story seriously. It's an incredibly diverse mm. cast. Um, it's, it's doing so many things right in a way that at the end of every episode, you're just shaking your head like, what did I just watch? And it's, it's, <laughs> it's sucking me back in every single week. And it's become a, an amazingly surprise hit just because of... of it's it's not disrespecting itself, but it's not taking itself seriously. Mm-hmm. So, I yeah. would uh, I would recommend that. And if you just want a rollicking mm-hmm. good time, yeah. I mean, on a similar note, I've been watching um, the latest series of um, American Horror Story. Oh God, yes. Which, um, yeah, you're talking about crazy stuff. This is definitely within that kind of uh, remit. 
I think Eric has got a phrase which I've adopted more recently, which is banana pants crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's definitely banana pants crazy. Um, the cast is brilliant. I mean, they have a, a sort of a, an ensemble cast that they like to carry on from series to series, but they've introduced a, a few more really high profile actors into it this year. And I think it's really, really uh, just appointment viewing. Mm-hmm. So I really like that. And also Walking Dead as well. We've got the full series of that going and uh, I'm a bit of a sucker for that. So I've been enjoying that. And also I've got a recommendation for Eric. Because mm. you're going to be coming over to the UK fairly soon, aren't you? Yes, under a month. Mm-hmm. And if you happen to find your way, I know London is kind of the mecca for you guys when you come over. But if you find your way outside of London, about an hour to drive from where I live is Agatha Christie's holiday home called uh, Greenway House. Oh. And it's fascinating to walk around. You get to see her typewriter and lots of Agatha Christie-related paraphernalia. And you'll also get a bit of an insight into uh, some of the locations as well. Because having read um, The Five Little Pigs, that, I don't know if it's said explicitly somewhere, but it seemed to be very much like Greenway, the description of the, the landscape and where the uh, the house sits. Um, it's is very reminiscent of that, so... If you find your way down this way, it'll be definitely one to go for. That is definitely something to add to the list. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for coming onto the show. I really appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having Deb. <laughs> so where can we find you guys? Um, uh, Deb first. Uh, where well, can you, we find you online? You can find me on Twitter at, at mm-hmm. Deb Stanish. Um, you can find me on Verity Podcast at veritypodcast.com where we talk about all things Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, through the Verity Podcast link, you can find links to blogs and everything else. So that's probably the easiest place to to fall down the rabbit hole. <laughs> and it's a fun ride too. I mean, I have to say, I really enjoy your podcast. It's, yeah, I listen to it usually within minutes of downloading it's it's one of those Aww. ones that i really enjoy likewise eric eric i don't want you to feel left out because you just start in another That's podcast it. now yeah there's a third yeah no you can you can also find me on twitter at sjc austinite a-u-s-t-e-n-i-t-e um and if you just google my name you'll actually find that on twitter mm-hmm. um and yeah there are three podcasts there's the doctor who book club podcast um which comes out at the end of the month there's mm-hmm. Uh, Doctor Who, the writer's room, which uh, comes out middle of the month. Uh, that's just a new episode just dropped yesterday on Terrence Sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the non-Doctor Who podcast that also comes at the end of the month called uh, the Classic Horror Cast, where we talk about classic horror movies. This month's movie is Psycho. Sweet. Yeah. Yes. Nothing like making the rest of us podcasters feel like slackers here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> three? Seriously, three. Three. Okay. Uh, three. Yeah. That's just the three we know about. I mean, I'm sure he's got a few more. Oh, oh yeah. There are, you know, dozens of others that I do secretly. <laughs> the secret podcast of Eric Stadnick. The secret mm. podcast. Yeah. They're for spying purposes. <laughs> thank you both so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. This is a lot of fun. Oh, thank you.
I kind of figured I'd offer this service to Doctor Who podcasters who just need a break <laughs> from talking about Doctor Who and they can talk about something else instead. Oh, aren't you sweet? Taking one for the team. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, and it's, it's such hard work as well. I mean, having great guests every time, it's just, I don't know. I'm sure I'll, I'll cope somehow. <laughs> Your life is so hard. It is. I really is. appreciate you inviting me on. It was, that's good. Thank yeah, you very lots much. Lots of fun. It's your happy hour. Fantastic. Sweet. I know, okay. which will be awesome. I we only live what like two and a half hours from each other. We're not that yeah. far. Which yeah, your you know, profile in- picture on Skype is very pop culture happy hourish. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that. Yeah, what can I say? Um, so yeah, but it, and it doesn't. You know, it's really not that far. But trying to coordinate things can be tricky. Very tricky. Yeah. Very tricky. We need okay, to have so. Eric and Glenn Weldon on a podcast together. That would be awesome. Oh, my God. I would definitely have a fangasm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if the universe might not explode. But yeah. uh, it'd be worth it. But-